Welcome to Glendale Christian Church. My name is Andrew Kirshner. I'm the preacher here at GCC, and I'm very, very grateful that you have decided to worship with us. When God calls someone by name, he's getting a hold of them personally. And when God identifies someone by name, we see very often in Scripture that names are much more than mere appellation. They're much more than vocative address. Hey, whoever, come over here. Oftentimes in Scripture, names carry certain significance in terms of a person's character or in terms of a person's mission. Think about some of the names in Scripture. Eve was named by her husband Adam because she would be the living or the mother of all living. That's why she was called Eve. We think about Abraham, and he had his name changed from Abram to Abraham because he would be the father of many nations, and certainly that promise has come to fruition. We think about some of the fantastic names in Scripture, even Jesus. God left it up to no chance what the Heavenly Father's Son would be called. In Matthew 1.21, Joseph is told that you are to give him the name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Names are really, really important. My name is Andrew Kirshner. I like the name Andrew quite a bit because in Greek it means manly. And you can see how I live up to my Greek name. I'm a tall, manly guy. That's what Andrew means. It means manly, powerful, powerful, manly. And so I like that. I also love the fact that Andrew was one of the uh, disciples, one of the very first disciples called. He was called and said, hey, big brother Simon, come on over. And he was bringing people to Jesus. I love that. What a heritage for me to try to live to. But my last name is Kirshner. German sounding. Now, when I started researching the name Kirschner, I recognized long, long ago that Kirsch, Kirsch, is actually a German liquor distilled from a certain kind of cherry found only in the Bavarian aspect of the Black Forest. And so, Kirsch, Kirsch, is this kind of cherry liquor. And I'm sad to say that in my life, I lived up to that name too. I was the cherry drinking man. And so, yes, that, how horrible. And I thought, oh, that, that's my heritage. That's my heritage. Well, my brother struggled with alcoholism. I have uncles who struggled with alcoholism. I didn't want that to be my heritage. I didn't want that to be what I was about. And as I was called by God, I kept looking into the last name Kirshner. And I realized that cherry man is not the only thing that Kirshner means, for Kirsch does not have the exact same as Kirsche, the liquor. Instead, the German word for church, Kirsch, sounds an awful lot like my last name. Powerful churchman, Andrew Kirshner. That's what I want it to be. And when God calls me, I hope that's what it is. Because I want our congregation to thrive. I want our congregation to flourish. And when we interact with God, there's something special that happens. He knows us by name and calls us by name. But we can know him by name. And we can call him by name also.
Today, we continue our series on mountains and the divine encounters that take place there. So far, we've already talked about the mountains of Ararat, upon which God brought to rest the ark that Noah had constructed, and where God encountered Noah, revealing his holy nature to his righteous servant, and declaring covenantally that he would never destroy the whole earth with flood again. And then last week, we talked about Mount Moriah, one of the most significant mountains in the whole Bible, where God called Abraham by name and he told his servant Abraham to sacrifice and slay his only son, the son through whom the promise was to be reckoned. But Abraham did not have to follow through. He had to demonstrate the nature of faith. And during this encounter, we understand the nature of faith. Faith involves a heartfelt belief and trust and a willingness to lovingly obey. Abraham did not have to sacrifice his son that day. The Heavenly Father said, I will sacrifice my son someday on this same mountain many years from now. And today we come to another mountain and another glorious encounter. If you have your scriptures, go ahead and turn open to Exodus chapter 3. For today, we will talk about the very first time that God encounters Moses. But while you're turning there, remember that the story of Moses is the continuation of the story that we've been telling. For after God rescued humanity through Noah and those uh, of his family that he was allowed to put on the ark, then came all sorts of increased population, and one of those descendants was Abraham. Abraham had Isaac, and Isaac had Jacob, and Jacob had his name changed to Israel, and Israel had 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. And one of those sons was a man named Joseph. And you may recall the story of Joseph, how Joseph saved his family from, well, starvation. Because the earth experienced a terrible, terrible drought, but he had been placed in charge in Egypt, and he was able to provide grain for his family. And so, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or Israel, had Joseph, and things were glorious. And the people of Israel, the Hebrews, were in Egypt. But after Joseph died, new pharaohs came to the throne New kings of Egypt emerged that did not know or remember Joseph. And 400 years after the time of Joseph, the new king of Egypt, the Pharaoh, decided that the population of the Hebrews was becoming too voluminous. There were too many, and they were too hard to control. And he feared that perhaps they would rise up and overthrow the Egyptians. And so he became a slave master. And he enslaved the people of Israel. The Hebrew people became slaves to the people of Egypt. And their lives got increasingly difficult all the time. And every time Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, decided that he would try to make things harder and he would make their lives more oppressive, the more Hebrews there were. And so he said, that's it. I've tried everything. I know how I can cut down on this population. Let's take every little boy two years or younger and let's kill him dead. Let's make sure that no new Hebrew boys come about. Well, it was at this time that a little boy named Moses was born. Now, Moses' mom, a Hebrew woman, certainly did not want her baby to be killed, and so she did something drastic. She crafted a tiny ark, a tiny vessel, covered it in pitch, and set the baby 
in the water and sent it down the Nile River. Tears streaming down her face, adding to the liquid in the river, thinking, what will happen to my son? Well, just down the river, the Pharaoh's daughter was hanging out. And she thought to herself, I'd like to have a baby, but I don't want to go through all the work of having a baby. Here's one! And she took the child, and she thought, I'll keep this child. And then Mo's older sister, who'd been watching her little brother float down the river, ran and said, oh, princess, do you need someone to take care of this baby? And she said, yes, I need a Hebrew wet nurse. I need a Hebrew woman who can raise this child. And she said, I know just the one. And Moses' own mom was able to nurse and raise him even though he was now considered part of the Egyptian royal family. What a life Moses experienced. The heritage of the Hebrews, the heritage of the Egyptians, raised in the finest schools, raised in the palace, given the greatest education, put in charge of many, many people. He grew into manhood. And during one of these days, as a man, he saw a fellow Hebrew from heritage being beaten by one of his fellow Egyptians by adoption. So enraged was Moses that he went over, sought to stop the beating, and ended up killing the Egyptian, seeking to cover it up. It got all exposed, and he had to be exiled. He had to get out, and he had to run and leave. Not only his people, the Hebrews, he had to run that were stuck in Egypt. He had to leave his people, the Egyptians, and he crossed the Red Sea, and he went to the area of Midian, and there, his life had to start anew. He met a beautiful gal named Zipporah. He met her father-in-law, or his soon-to-be father-in-law, Jethro, and he started working as a shepherd for his father-in-law. And that's where we find ourselves in Exodus chapter 3. Follow along in your favorite translation, or on the words behind me. But what we'll see very soon in the text is that it takes place at Mount Horeb, now, Mount Horeb is a very, very special place. Mount Horeb is very special. You can see that it's been burned at the top because the very presence of God burned at the top of the mountain. This is the same mountain that God decreed the Ten Commandments and gave the law. This is the same mountain that Moses sent out uh, Caleb and Joshua as the great spies to go to the Promised Land. This is the same mountain that Elijah sought cover in. This is a mountain of God. But you might know Mount Horeb by another name, Mount Sinai. Look at the lower right-hand portion of the screen. Mount Sinai and Mount Horeb are the same mountain. They're referred to in Scripture interchangeably. And here in Exodus chapter 3, we will hear the phrase Mount Horeb. But later in Scripture, we will also hear the phrase Mount Sinai. They are the same place and they are wild. It is wildly important. So follow along now as we traverse Exodus chapter 3 verses 1 through 21. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And as he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight. Why the bush does not burn up? When the Lord saw that he had gone to look, 
God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face, because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. And I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I to go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. Go. Assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me and said, I've watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. And I have promised to bring you out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you will go You and the elders will go to the king of Egypt and say to him, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, has sent, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to Yahweh, our God. But I know the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. And I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed toward this people, so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters, and so you will plunder the Egyptians. This text has the power to change lives. This text has the power to change the entire way that you see God. To change the entire way that you think about God. To alter and impact for the good the way you interact with God Almighty. This text is a true game changer. 
Yes, it must have been very, very peculiar for Moses as he was tending his father-in-law's flock, thinking, my life has now become something very different. I'm no longer in the palaces of Egypt. I'm now in the nomadic aspect of Midian, and I am taking care of the flock. And as he drove his flock to the far edges of Midian, to Mount Horeb, the mountain of God, something very peculiar caught his eye. It was a bush that was aflame. This in and of itself is not peculiar because it's on fire. It's a very dry part of the world. It's a very hot part of the world. And it's not entirely unreasonable to think that a bush would catch flame, but it is entirely unreasonable to think that a bush having caught flame would not be engulfed or burned up. And Moses saw fire dancing in this giant bush, unaware of why it was not consumed. And so he thought to himself, I will go investigate this strange sight. And as he got closer and closer, God called him by name, Moses, Moses. And Moses gave the right answer. And you know what it is. Here I am. When God calls you by name, the right answer is, here I am. Here I am. Because here I am is indicative of you understanding your position and you understanding God's position and you knowing full well that you will do what he tells you to do next. This is the same thing that Abraham responded. Abraham, Abraham, here I am. It's the same thing that Isaac and Jacob responded. It's the same thing that later... Caleb will respond, Samuel will respond, and Jesus will knock on the door according to Revelation 3.20, asking you to invite him in by declaring unto you, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. Will you receive me? And so Moses hears the angel of the Lord. Did you notice how in the very beginning of the text it says that the angel of the Lord was the one who was burning in the bush? This is very, very interesting because the angel of the Lord also made an appearance last week. The angel of the Lord is no mere messenger, for that's what the word angel means, messenger. The angel of the Lord is a divine messenger. It is God delivering his own message. You see lots of angels, but when you see the angel of the Lord, that is God himself. That is the second person of the Trinity. This makes perfect sense. After all, uh, the book of John in the New Testament, chapter 1, verse 1, tells us that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then verse 14, the Word became flesh. Jesus, we know him as Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, is the Word. So when God speaks, when God does something, very often it is the second person of the Trinity who is doing the communication action. And we know that it is God because a few verses later it says, and God spoke to him from the burning bush. The angel of the Lord is a divine messenger. It is part of the Trinity. And God says, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses hid his head and he took off his shoes because this was holy, holy ground. And Moses had a job to do. Moses was to go back to Egypt, but he wasn't confident about going back to Egypt. You go back to Egypt and draw my people out. Who am I to go back to Egypt? Who are you? You're the one I've called. That's who you are. We sometimes look at ourselves and ask, who am I that I should, and then fill in the blank, do whatever it is God has called us to do. But I'll tell you exactly who you are. 
You're the one God called. And when God calls you, God equips you. And when God equips you and calls you, he knows you. And he's calling Moses by name in the same way that he's calling you and I by name. And so Moses says, okay, all right, suppose I go. And the people say, yeah, what's his name? What am I going to say? And God does something amazing. For the first time in all time, God reveals his personal name to someone God reveals his name to Moses. He has not revealed his name to anyone before in Scripture. He has not revealed his name to anyone. Everybody just knows of him as God. They don't know his personal name. But Moses gets to hear the personal name of God Almighty. And it's an important thing to get the name of God Almighty. Do you know why it's an important thing to get the name of God Almighty? Because Psalm 910 tells us, those who know your name... Put their trust in you. How is it that we can put our trust in one we do not know? How can we put our name in one that we do not know? But I'm here to tell you that in the Old Testament, God's very personal name is used a lot. Like a way lot. Like 6,828 times a lot. 6,828 times God's personal divine name is recorded in Scripture, and yet the NIV translates it zero times. The NRSV translates it zero times. In fact, only a couple, only a handful of English translations, the Holman and the Legacy Standard Bible, translate the divine name of God into an English-sounding thing. Instead, your translation and mine, I use the NIV to preach out of most of the time, has the word LORD, L-O-R-D, in all capitals, 6,828 times. Instead of God's name! Why? Because nobody wants to misuse God's name. He does say a little bit about this on the same mountain, in fact. He says, don't, don't, you know, take my name in vain. And we live in a society where people take God's name in vain all the time. It's in cuss words. People, people are flippant with God's name. And yet, they aren't so much flippant with his name because they don't know his name. 6,828 times his name is recorded and zero times is it translated. That is a problem. In fact, in the Old Testament, only 2,000, uh, 2,000, what was it? I wrote it down. 2,300 and, or 838 times is the generic word for God used. El or Elohim. That means the personal name of God is used three times more than the generic word God. And yet if I were to say, how many of you have heard the personal name of God? I don't know that everybody would know what it is. And that's a sad, sad thing to me that I seek to remedy and that God himself seeks to remedy. And so God reveals his name. In, Gen in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, God says, I am who I am. Who shall I tell them? It's funny. I am who I am. This is very important for understanding his name. In the same verse, he says, I am has sent me to you. Tell them I am has sent me to you. And then in the very next verse, in chapter 3, verse 15, it says, Yahweh has sent me to you. This is my name forever. I am who I am, and the word Yahweh have the exact same root in the Hebrew language, the word Hayah. And so when you have the verb to be, I am, I exist, I am who I am, this is the same beginning as the personal name of God, Yahweh. They are the exact same start. In fact, 
when you see it written in Hebrew, God's personal name is Yahweh, Y-H-W-H. Hebrew is a peculiar language in that there are only 22 letters and there are no vowels. It is only consonants. And so the name Yahweh is Y-H-W-H, and we know how to pronounce it based on how the ancient Hebrews and Jews of old would pronounce things. And so you would put little notes and marks to help you figure out how to pronounce words. Y-H-W-H appears in the Old Testament 6,828 times. That's exactly right. Yahweh, Yahweh. That is God's name. But the Bibles don't translate it that way. Because we don't want to misuse God's name. And there was a tradition that emerged. And that tradition was this. When you see the word Yahweh, you don't have to say Yahweh. In fact, the Hebrews were so afraid to say it that when they would see it written, they would say a different word. It's a pretty word. Adonai. Adonai. Adonai means Lord. And that's why we translate it capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Lord. So in Hebrew, if you read it, and you were a good Jew, you would read it and you would come across the name Yahweh. And because you didn't want to misuse the name, you wouldn't say it. You would say, Yah, you, instead of saying Yahweh, you would say Adonai instead. Now, this happened because as humans typically do, we take God's rules high and to the right. We do this all the time. We, we we're like, oh, God said this. We're going to make it even more restrictive and horrible because we love legalism. We do this all the time. We come up with extra stuff and we add it to the Bible and we seek to wreck and ruin what God has in store for us. This is my name from generation to generation that I will be called forever, except by all my people. Nope, that's not how it's supposed to be. That's not how it's supposed to be at all. God's name is too glorious for us not to use Yahweh. That is his name, Y-H-W-H. And the beginning is I am. They have the exact same start. It's a play on words. And this concept of I am should change your life. Because when you understand that Yahweh is the great I am, you understand that Yahweh exists. God exists. You think, well, of course God exists. Don't get flippant. Don't just say God exists. Even the demons say God exists and they shudder. If there are going to be a lot of people who come before the judgment seat of Christ... And when they stand before his judgment seat, they might say, hey, I believed you existed. And then he might say, then why didn't you live like it? The fact that God exists should, by itself, impel us to action. His existence should change everything about our lives. Everything about what we think. Everything about what we do. God exists and therefore we should be different. Not only that, but it bespeaks his aseity. Aseity is the philosophically fancy term for there is no reality behind God. There is no foundation upon which God is built. Someone may ask, who made God? No one made God. That's a silly question. God, by definition, is the unmade maker of everything. And so, if God was made, then the thing you thought was God is not God, and the thing that made the thing you thought was God is the actual God. God is the foundation of all existence, the foundation of all reality, the source of all being, the inexhaustible source of energy for the universe, that which sustains and continues life as we know it, life itself comes from the self-existent one. Who are you? I am who I am. Notice that it's not, I was who I was and now I am who I am. Nope, there is no changing among God. In fact, in uh, Malachi chapter 3, the Bible declares, Yahweh, I am Yahweh and I do not change. And then, of course, in Hebrews chapter 13, we understand that God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Tomorrow. 
God is the same forever. God does not change, but it also bespeaks the objectivity of God. I am. It's not I feel. It's not I care about what you think I am. I am who I am. That's who Yahweh is. And so God exists whether or not you believe in him. His objectivity transcends our subjectivity. And that's what his very name and nature implies. And this perfect God has revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. The great I am? Yeah. You know who the I am is? It's God. Yahweh. And Jesus calls himself the exact same thing. In the book of John, he says, yes, I am the bread of light. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. And no less than two other times does he declare himself to be I am. Before Abraham was, I am. He is directly placing himself inside the nature of Yahweh. And when he's about to be arrested... They say, are you Jesus? I am! And they fall back because he is declaring his own divinity. In fact, it's not even us having to make any of this up. So Yahweh, instead of being spoken, was read Adonai. But then when the Greek people sought to translate the Hebrew Old Testament into the Greek language known as the Septuagint, every time the word Yahweh, which was pronounced Adonai, was translated, it was just translated into the Greek word for Lord, kurios. So every time we call Jesus Lord, don't misunderstand that. That's not like calling Jesus your landlord like he's in charge of... No. Calling Jesus Christ Lord means you are calling him Yahweh. God Almighty. That's who Jesus is. In fact, the Bible tells us that's exactly who he is. In Matthew one twenty one, you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. That's his mission. And you know what his nature is? It's in his name. Jesus means Yahweh saves. That's what the name Jesus means. There was no chance that the father left it up to the world to decide what his son would be called. Nope, you're to give him the name Jesus because he'll save his people from their sins. Yahweh saves. The father does not have a particular and unique name. The spirit does not have a particular and unique name. We call our heavenly father our heavenly father. We call the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit. But we call the second person of the Trinity Jesus Christ because he became incarnate. And when he stepped out of heaven into the world that he created to save humanity made in his own image, to die upon the cross in our own place and to be raised from the dead for our own justification, it is Yahweh doing all of it. Yahweh the Father sent Yahweh the Son and Yahweh the Spirit raised him up. Yahweh saves. Yeah, all because of Jesus. And then after Jesus has been raised from the dead and all authority on heaven and earth has been given back to him, he declares, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. But did you know that in the Greek language, that's not three different names. It's not the name of the Father and then the other name of the Son and then the third name. No, it is one name. One name. What do you suppose the one name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit happens to be? Yahweh. Yahweh saves. This, 
changed my life. I remember sitting on a hill. It wasn't quite as cool as Mount Horeb. It was just a hill, just down from Mozart Christian College. I'd skipped out on curfew. I'd stayed out all night long. I had some thinking to do. I hadn't met Kim yet. My life wasn't on the path that I thought it was. I wasn't sure if I needed to be Andrew Cherry Man or if I needed to be Andrew Church Man. I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure. And so I bought a pack of Lipton iced tea and I sat out drinking sweet tea all night long under the stars. Curfew be darned. I don't care. And I asked God to reveal himself. And God revealed himself to me as the great I am. And there are two conceptual things that changed the entire trajectory of my life that happened that night. I said, God, if you want me to do something, you need to reveal yourself to me in a powerful way. And God revealed himself to me as the necessarily self-existent one who exists as three in one. And he revealed that the truest thing outside of his own existence and nature is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And so the resurrection of Jesus from the dead has been a driving force of my entire life. And it should be all of ours because it is the, it's the thing that separates ours from every other religion. We're the only one that bases our entire faith upon a historically verifiable event. But even before we get to the resurrection, the nature of who God is changed me. God is the self-existent, necessarily existent one. And God revealed to me that night that the ontological argument for the existence of God was true in the same way that he revealed it to St. Anselm and to Richard of St. Victor and to so many other great Christian thinkers throughout the years. And so I know beyond any shadow of a doubt that because I can conceive of God, God actually exists. The nature of God requires that God be the necessary and self-existent one. I am who I am. That is what he is. Yahweh is his name and he must exist. And so I wrote my second master's thesis on the ontological argument for the existence of God. It is so important to me. And the only thing of equal importance to me is the nature of God being triune. When you see the word God, I want this entire congregation to automatically think the word Trinity unless context specifies that it's either the Father or the Son or the Spirit. That's what I want. That's my goal for this entire congregation is that when you hear or see the word Trinity or God, you will think the word Trinity and you will understand that his name is Yahweh. The triune master of heaven and earth is Yahweh. The father is not Yahweh by himself. The angel of the Lord who is God who spoke to Moses is Yahweh. The spirit who fluttered over the waters of the deep is Yahweh. The father to whom Jesus prays is Yahweh. This is the same God that we can call out on. Don't make the mistake of seeing and hearing God time and time and time again and just saying, praise his name. No, actually praise his name. Don't just say praise his name. Praise the Tetragrammaton. Tetragrammaton is the name for Yahweh. It's the four letters, Y-H-W-H, because tetra means four, and grammaton means the named one. And so the four-letter named one, that's God. So if you ever hear somebody say, praise the tetragrammaton, they're talking about Yahweh, Y-H-W-H. So we sing all kinds of songs. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It's actually holy, holy, holy is Yahweh Almighty. The Lord God Almighty, Yahweh Almighty. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to change your life. Read Exodus 3 through 12. God promised, oh, you're going to come back to this mountain. And sure enough, Moses brings the guys, splits the rock, quenches their thirst, and they pray to God on this mountain. It's coming. 
But before we can get there, God has to get him out of Egypt. And how did he say he had to do that? By extending his mighty hand. Yeah, read about his extension. It is awesome. Then, I want you to very specifically memorize Exodus 3, 14 and 15. This is where God says, I am who I am. Tell them I am has sent you. Tell them Yahweh, the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has sent you. This is my name forever, from generation to generation. Memorize that passage. And then I want you to think real long and hard about what you've just been memorizing. I want you to contemplate God's name and God's nature. I want you to think deeply about it all week long. Think about Yahweh, the triune master of heaven and earth, and how he is the self-existent, self-generated powerhouse for the entire reality around us. And then I want you to pray. And I want you to pray differently than you've ever prayed. I want you to pray exalting God's name and God's attributes. I want you to pray. For three years now, I've been teaching you to pray, Dear Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, and Holy Spirit. And that's the right foundation. And now we're adding another layer to it. When we pray, we don't just talk about God's attributes. It's time we start talking about God's name. For I can confidently come before the throne room of Yahweh himself. Because he has saved me. I don't have to be afraid of his name, and I certainly don't have to go through life not even knowing his name. And so when you pray this week, I want you to pray exalting his name. I want you to say, Dear Yahweh, I know that you are the Heavenly Father, the Lord Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. Yahweh, in your name I come. I want you to talk about him using his name and his attributes. Let's try it. We're going to pray, and then we're going to sing. And during this last song, if you need to come and confess Yahweh as your Savior, if you need to come and join this body, or if you need just to come down and pray, then come on down and pray. Let us stand, let us pray, and let us praise the one who is the great I Am, Yahweh himself. Dear Heaven.